0: This is On Call with Dr. Dave, and today I have Dr. Omar here. Now, your your episode, I wanted to do something a little different because a lot of times I just like ask people to share just unique patient experiences or a funny moment from their career or a silly moment, but since you do those surgical mission trips and you found yourself in some really unique situations, I thought it'd be really interesting just to have you go through... Even just getting ready for a trip, so if, you know, I, I know there's probably some hectic things, trying to get things on flights, border crossings. I'm sure at some point you've had a gun pointed at your face. Like I, I kind of want to know, you know, just, okay. and it doesn't have to be. That's
1: just, exactly that's exactly <laughs> what happened on this last trip. Yeah, <laughs> not so much a gun in our face, but a gun on the side holster. And uh...
0: yeah, so I've done just two surgical mission trips to Haiti, and just walking okay. around and just being. Just don't, not quite belonging, feeling like an outsider. And then the military slash police force there with their machine guns and bribes to get your gear through sometimes, like having to give them a little extra money to get your surgical tools through to help people. It was right. such a unique experience. And I know you've had 10x the experience on doing these trips as I do. So I just want to hear it doesn't have to be the last trip, but just take me through the process of you are you know getting ready for one of these trips and just take me through the crazy but also the touching moments or the scary moments like being close to fighting being close to or in a situation where maybe there's some things still going on in this in this city i don't know like i said like you post some really interesting things and i thought they could be a really interesting story to hear you talk about it
1: yeah sure yeah so I'm Dr. Omar and, um, I do oculoplastic surgery like doctor, Dr. Dave and, and, uh, oculoplastic surgery is, uh, it can mean a lot of things. I'm an ophthalmologist, but, um, we specialize in surgical treatment around the eyes. So anything related to the eyelids, the orbit, the tear duct system. And then we expand also to some facial structures as well. So, um, in my line of work, I'm very interested in um, mission, mission trips, uh, treating patients from around the world, whether it's virtually, during the pandemic, or uh, physically. Uh, before the pandemic, I was going on maybe three or four trips a year, and so the pandemic really shut things down. Um, this is my second trip that I just recently went on since the pandemic began. And, and you just
0: got was- back a few weeks ago?
1: Yeah, just got back a few weeks ago. So how that happened is my family's Turkish and uh, part Syrian as well. And this earthquake that hit recently, devastating earthquake, really hit close to home. And when it happened, actually, the epicenter was right outside of where my father's from. Oh, wow. So
0: Real close to home. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So we had family members in the area, some distant relatives that passed that they're distant. I didn't really know them, but, uh, so it really hit close to home, um, which was a unique unique aspect of this trip. Um, and how it happened is, you know, after the earthquake, after the devastation that we were hearing about, um, there are a lot of groups collecting money for, for treating people out there, whether it's for medical purposes or homes, Mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of apartment buildings and Homes were destroyed. And so I reached out to some groups and I said, you know, I'm a doctor and I go on trips, so I'd be happy to help out if I can. So actually, yeah, Turkey is great with their medical care system. They already are well set up and they've been able to treat all their patients locally with their own doctors, which was great. That's you, great. right. So they didn't really need outside medical assistance. Um, and, but they're, cities are all devastated in that whole region. So they're still getting uh, financial assistance because it's trillions of dollars probably of damage. But the the earthquake was also on the Syrian side. And in Syria, they've been devastated from the war these past how many years? Mm -hmm. um, They are in dire need of medical help. And a lot of patients from Syria were being sent into Turkey for treatment. But since the earthquake, the border kind of shut down so people weren't able to get out of Syria to get treatment in Turkey so a lot of patients who suffered in the quake and who were suffering from just regular medical issues as well or suffered from the war trauma from um, you know constant bombings and mines going off and they're they're locking facilities to go for treatment and there are, there are facilities. And, um, actually the group I went with, um, they're called SAMS, the Syrian American Medical Society. They have a presence in Syria. They've had a presence for a while. And right at the border between Turkey and Syria, they have a hospital set up. And the hospital is actually a fully functioning hospital, great facility, um, great physician staff and, uh, nurses. And, and so that was the goal to get to that hospital. They have ophthalmologists, and they mm-hmm. even have ophthalmology residents, but they're comprehensive. And comprehensive there means they're actually comprehensive. They do everything. So, <laughs> uh, you know, we talk about comprehensive ophthalmologists just to define that. In the States, it's usually an ophthalmologist who sees everything, but a lot of times for more complex situations like retina issues or oculoplastic issues or glaucoma issues, they get sent to the specialists. So, the mm-hmm. subspecialists within ophthalmology. And that's what I do, ophthalmology, oculoplastic surgery. So, it's a subspecialty within ophthalmology. Cool. And um, I know it's confusing with all these.
0: Um, <laughs> you know, different that's okay. Of specialties.
1: I get asked by patients all the time. So, you do eyelids, Is it the right <laughs> side or the left side. Uh, but, uh, but um, yeah, so there, the ophthalmologists, they handle everything because a lot of times they don't have subspecialists to send patients to. And so they're already dealing with oculoplastic trauma. They've been dealing with it, but they want, they're eager to learn more of what we do and how we might do things a little differently. And um, so the goal was to get to that hospital and to start working with them. They were um, already filtering through patients and gathering all the patients that they wanted to learn how I would do things. Mm -hmm. So that was the goal, to get to that hospital. So, like I said, I sent my information to a bunch of groups that had a goal of entering Syria to help. But the the entry into Syria is very difficult. In order to get there, you need approval from Turkey. You need approval from Syria. You need approval at the border crossing. You need approval at customs. Um, our group had 30 large bags of medical goods. So in addition to the 11 of us going, we had 30, 30 plus bags of gear wow. that we were going to take with us. And um, so it was myself, along with 10 other doctors from from the U.S., um, who I didn't know at the time. They were all from uh, Chicago and the East Coast. I was the only one from California. So uh, one week before the trip, I was contacted and I said, oh, we're putting together a group. and." it's in a week. And if you're interested, we can probably get going. And so (laughs) I said, "Um, sure, I'd be happy to go. Um, I checked with my work and I said, there's a 90% chance I'm going to (laughs) go. And thankfully my work was super supportive. So they said, okay, we'll we'll support you if you want to go. So I blocked off my schedule just in case. And I was waiting for the final confirmation. And the confirmation was, Basically, we needed approval from Turkey and Syria that me and the other doctors would be allowed in. We didn't get it till the night before. So we didn't didn't book our flights until the night before. And thankfully, um, the tickets were still available. So I flew out of LAX, landed in Istanbul. And then from there, we're going to fly to the Syrian border. And the airport closest is right outside of the epicenter which was damaged too much from the from the earthquake so we couldn't fly in there but we flew into another airport which was maybe like a four to six hour bus ride mm-hmm. from the from the from the border so we at that point we had the approval but the approval wasn't received at the border yet so we were taking a risk and we flew out then um we got to istanbul at istanbul That's the first time I met with the other 10 doctors. And we were meeting at the baggage claim. And of course, the 30 plus bags from Chicago um, were not allowed through customs. So we had to catch our second flight. And um, we're waiting and waiting. And all the bags were there, but they just couldn't get across customs. And we had already checked with Turkish Airlines before the flight. And they were going to allow it. They, they provided all the baggage uh, shipping for free, thankfully.
0: Oh, wow. That's impressive.
1: Yeah. But the, the customs agent, even though we had approval, they didn't get the notice. And it was 11 o'clock at night when we were there. <laughs> <laughs> so we're waiting for a few hours. And our next flight that was coming up, and we were about to miss it. So we decided, um, I think it was six of us that went through. We went on the other flight and the remaining uh, doctors, they stayed with the bags and they were waiting for the approval. Thankfully, once it was change of shift that night, the, the person in charge left and the new person in charge um, had some sympathy for us. So hmm. he let all the bags through. Oh, thank goodness. So, so it was a short delay. The next group, they flew out on the next flight, which was a couple hours later. So thankfully, now we got to the east coast of Turkey with all the bags. And then we need to wait for the customs agent um, at the border to get the approval. So even though this, we got the approval. So the
0: Syrian, did you need to do Turkish again at the border or just Syrian at the border? So
1: it's kind of interesting. I didn't realize this, but the border is not like a wall. The border is like a one-mile passageway, one-mile highway. So on one side is the Turkish side. One side is the Syrian side. So both of those gatekeepers needed our approval, Mm -hmm. which we had, but they didn't have physically. So the next day when we're near the border, we were delayed because we couldn't go through. They didn't receive in the time. So we lost the day because of that, unfortunately. The next morning, though, we left at like five, six in the morning. We got to the border. Um, the Turkish side was easy. We took out all the bags. We had to scan them at the border, put them on the Turkish van again, drive across through that mile passageway to get to the other side of the border. And that's where we were on the Syrian side. Mm -hmm. On the Syrian side, we had to do the same thing. We got all the bags out. We had to get to a different van because the Turkish van can't cross through that part of the border. So we needed the Syrian van to pick us up. And. That part was another delay. So we had all our bags. We're sitting out on the sidewalk and we're waiting. And we didn't know, but the the vans and the actually the ambulance that was going to pick us up and drive us to the hospital, they were waiting with us for I don't know three or four hours, just maybe two miles away. The problem is that next section was controlled by a different entity that we didn't really know. It wasn't a government entity, it wasn't Turkey, it wasn't Syria, it was another entity. And I still don't know the full story, but all I know is a few hours after waiting, uh, three three guys approached us. One guy in the front with sunglasses and a trench coat and two guys behind that were kind of big and, and uh, bodyguards looking. And they came up to us and they said basically they didn't know what we were doing there and we didn't have authorization to go through the next section and it seemed like maybe they wanted money but later i found out they wanted more of uh authority and they're trying to control that next section in syria there's a lot of a lot of areas where they don't really have the syrian government they don't have the turkish government protecting they don't have um a police force they just have uh, different groups trying to gain control. So it's a very, ever since the war, it's been, um, you know, a very shaky kind of situation. And the group that we went with, they have a policy not to deal with any outside entities. So they only deal official um, with official governments. They, we process all the paperwork, we apply for, you know, our medical license and everything, but we don't deal with things like this. So mm-hmm. we couldn't bribe them. We couldn't pass them money. We couldn't, we could barely even talk to them. We weren't even supposed to talk to them. So they delayed us. They wouldn't let the vans pass. After uh three or four, maybe five hours, they gave up and they let the vans pass.
0: <laughs> <laughs> These guys are not well, getting it. We just want money, but they won't give us money. What do we do? <laughs>
1: yeah. So, so thankfully that was the end of that story. So our, our vans and the ambulance drivers, they came, they picked us up, and the hospital was within two miles of where we were waiting. We could have walked there faster. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah the hospital was right on the border. And um it's it was an interesting situation. I didn't really know what to expect. i have been in on different trips um in different parts of the world, but this was very unique because I thought I'd be seeing um mostly earthquake-related trauma. So, we get there, and we were a day later than we wanted. And so, as soon as we got in, um, there were there were lines of patients waiting for us. I was the only ophthalmologist. Um, everybody else, they were a combination of uh, radiology, OB-GYN, general medicine, pediatrics. Uh, it was just a mix of all subspecialties. And there were actually a few different hospitals and clinics that we were distributed to. And so, each of us went off into our own group. So for me, I went with the ophthalmologist in the local hospital, and they had already had patients ready and waiting. And uh, the, the waiting room was in the parking lot. And um, so right away, there was no downtime. We just sat and uh, started seeing patients. And it was a very interesting setup because as soon as I met doctors there, and nurses and staff. I mean, it was it was so busy. I didn't have a lot of time to think about things, but coming back, I started thinking about the things I was I was uh seeing but not really realizing. For example, one of the doctors I first met, he was in in a sling. His arm was in a sling and turns out um his uh house was was damaged in the earthquake and he rescued his five daughters. And thankfully they're all safe, but He had family members, uh, parents and his brother that passed from the earthquake. So that had just happened within weeks of when I was there. And he was at work, you know, seeing patients and wanting to be there when I was there so that he can learn. And that was just one story. I mean, so many of these doctors and nurses, they, they just went through something so tragic and they're there, you know, with a lineup of patients with a smile on their face, so eager to learn, so eager to get started. So like, I, we were all tired, but we didn't, we didn't have the the emotional capacity to be, to be tired. And, you know, you just have to start running and start working. Mm-hmm. And so we started seeing patients and the patients, it, it, very sadly, they were mostly war-related trauma. And um, the war has been going on for years and years and years. And so, so many of these patients had trauma Years ago, and it was they were treated, but treated in a way where it was probably done in a, um, in a trauma center mm-hmm. where it was not an ophthalmologist treating it. It was just uh, stabilizing the patient enough to um, to be safe, that they're not going to die. So, for example, that would mean um, trauma to the to the eyeball and trauma to the eyelids. And when there's enough trauma to the eyeball, besides being blind, the eye shrinks. And when the eye shrinks, the eyelid and the tissue around the eyeball shrinks. And a small deformity can turn into a really large facial deformity. And these patients that I was seeing, they had um, very scarred eyelids to the point where it looks um, very tragic. And they can't put a prosthesis, a glass eye to make it look better. They can't really do anything to make it look better. And a lot of times it hurts. The eye doesn't close properly and the eye surfaces, which are supposed to be moist, they dry out and it can be really painful. It can get infected. But this was the common story for so many patients. And the the hardest part to deal with was these were not in soldiers. These were in women and children. There's like no filter for who gets these types of injuries. It was just everybody. And I mean, that was just so tragic. And it you know, it was it was kind of strange. Like you see a patient in this situation, they're they don't have a life-threatening issue, but they have something that if they were in the States, it would have been treated probably very differently. And and so When I was seeing these patients, I was alongside the general ophthalmologist. There were three, there were four of them, but three of them were working mostly at a time with me and then four residents. And they were there the whole time with me. And so we had thankfully all the time that we wanted. They wanted to stay until, you know, we had to go to sleep and that would be like midnight or one o'clock. So we were going through these patients. We We were talking about plans of what could be done. And even starting that day, we started surgery. So we started with, um, I think we were doing like four to six uh, surgeries a day, and they were um, not small surgeries. I mean, there were a lot of times bilateral cases with skin grafts, mucous membrane grafts, uh, just anything we can do to restore the function and the cosmesis of the eyelid and the the tissue, so that later they could place a prosthesis. Hopefully, so it was very. Touching that these doctors that had their own lives where they just had this significant trauma, but they were in the clinic, in the operating room with me so late at night and they were happy to be there. It's it's not like, you know, they were there grudgingly. No, they were, they wanted to keep going and going and going. And it was so satisfying from, from my point of view because they were excellent at what they do. So yeah, a little bit of guidance, I was able to teach a little bit and they picked it up really nicely. And sometimes we even had two rooms going at the same time where I was with one group and, you know, after they had the hang of it, then I go to the other room and they had the hang of it and, you know, some back and forth. So it it felt very productive, very successful Mm -hmm. work-wise. And, uh, you know, it's a good feeling. One issue with mission trips, um, there's a lot of controversy out there. And one issue is we never want to go somewhere and do a surgery and leave. I mean, doing that, you treat one patient and that's it. But if you're with a group where you're, where you're able to uh, exchange some knowledge and they feel comfortable and confident in proceeding, then, you know, there's continuance of whatever it is that you did during that trip. And I felt like we had that with this trip. And I feel very fortunate about that. I'm still in contact with these doctors. Uh, We have, I mean, thankfully, WhatsApp is such a great tool. We have constant communication. They send me information about all the patients that we saw and treated. Uh, They send me information about new patients just to get their input. So it's very, it's very, it feels very connected. It doesn't feel like it was just a one-off thing where I was there for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, So, you know And it is knowledge exchange because it is um, interesting to learn some of the things that they do. Uh, One example is we needed mucous membrane, and I was wondering if we had any access to amniotic membrane. And so there I asked them, amniotic membrane um, here in the States usually comes as a processed little sheet of amniotic tissue that we can use to line the surface of the eyelid or the surface of the eyeball. For reconstructive cases, and it comes as a processed piece of tissue that's easy to use. And then there, I asked them if we have access to amniotic membrane, and they looked at me kind of with a with a laugh, and they said, "Yeah, we have plenty of it." And I said, "Really? I'm surprised." And they said, "Yeah, we just um, talk to the OB/GYN department, and we find out when there's a C-section, and we go and we we get it ourselves, and then we process it ourselves." And it's, I mean, I I thought about it, and I'm like, what well, that makes total sense. <laughs> I mean, it's, there's so much access to the tissue and they they learned how to process it properly and there's sterile technique. And yeah, so we had tons of amniotic membrane, which was great. We used it for the whole week.
0: Yeah. So, And, and in my own just kind of Western mindset, I don't even know if I would even have thought to ask them or even have just assumed that they didn't have it. And I would have just been taking buccal mucosal grafts and right. I didn't really kind of deal with it, but yeah, you just, you take, you know, sometimes you get that Western mindset that like, oh, you order from a tissue bank, it comes prepackaged presterilized pre-sterilized. They're not going to have it here. Let's just do something else. But right. you asked and they said, yeah, of course, we can just go get it. like And <laughs> yeah, amniotic sacs are not a rare thing in the world yeah Every time a right. baby's born, there's an amniotic sac.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because there was another doctor who was a, who was a OB-GYN doc. And she was doing C-sections and deliveries out there, and uh, we'd reconnect at night. And so when I was talking to her about it, I mean, her light bulb went off too. It was like <laughs> such an amazing thing.
0: Yeah. Now with all the stuff you see, how do you deal with that emotionally? Like you said, you're you're going there to do one thing, and then you're seeing war injuries and in kids and women and yeah. people that are just victims of some of the violence. I mean, how do you unpack that? How do you deal with that emotionally?
1: You know, my first, no, second, my second day in the operating room, um, they were rolling a kid in. he was 20 years old and he was digging for work. And uh, there was a landmine he didn't see and it went off. So he had shrapnel in both eyes and it was the residents that was treating it. And I was hearing the story and I was getting emotional hearing the story of this little, this innocent kid, mm-hmm. this innocent young man, 20 years old, and now possibly he's going to be blind in both eyes. And I took it as something so tragic and so terrible. But the resident was rolling the patient in as if it was just so standard. And I mean, it's so common out there to see stuff like this that our minds are not ready for. I mean, my, my heart wasn't ready for this. And I think while being there, I mean, we were getting by on three, four hours of sleep a night, and we were just working constantly. So I was so tired. I didn't have time to really process and think mm-hmm. about things. And so, you know, I saw, I would see something like that. It was tragic and sad. I would see the resident handling it like, like it's nothing. And you know, again, he was so skilled at taking out these little foreign objects from the corny, I was watching him. Through the microscope, and I mean, I—it's just—it's just what they have to deal with, and yeah. So it, I didn't have time to process it then. Mm-hmm. It was really on the way back. So, you know, we spent the next six days with six days with constant work like this. Uh, we were seeing maybe twenty to thirty patients a day in clinic, and we were adding on any patients that we wanted to that day or that night or the next morning to surgery so we had anesthesia also available on call and they were great about adding cases whenever we wanted so that was that was so excellent to see that they had given us that kind of support so you know we worked constantly and it was really on the way back when we crossed through the border went back into turkey and the airport that was initially too damaged to fly into, they had repaired it enough to fly out of. And so we took a different route to get to that airport. And that's when we drove for probably two hours uh driving by, by complete destruction everywhere. Every building was destroyed or tilted um, in a way that was just complete rubble. And uh, I think that when, like, our whole van was breaking down. Mm -hmm. We had time where we're thinking about things, we're seeing things. That's when it really hit hard. And, yeah, I think that's when the emotional toll took was in combination with seeing the destruction from the earthquake.
0: Mm -hmm. And then when you get home, you just talk to family or colleagues or therapists. Like, how how do you process all of that? (laughs)
1: So it's interesting because, you know, I had to move a whole week of clinic and surgery.
0: So you came back to a busy overworked workload too.
1: Yeah. And, but the patients that we moved, the schedulers told them I'm going to be out of town. And so a lot of patients, you know, I like having a good relationship with patients. So they asked me, oh, how was your trip? And I I really don't know how to answer it. So, I mean, um, work-wise, it was it was excellent. It was, I I think as successful as it could have been, but emotionally it was terrible. It was uh, such a tragic, awful trip, but it was, you know, I'm so thankful that I was able to go and, and be uh, some kind of assistance there, but it was just, you know, it's so, I don't know. I don't think my, my, my emotions and my heart were were built for this kind of thing. You know, I'm not, I'm not a trauma surgeon. I'm not a, (laughs) I'm not a war medic. So, you know, maybe this is something that will toughen me up for future. But I, I mean, I've been on a lot of trips before, but I've never seen anything like this. I mean, the combination of tragedy from the war and women and children, the combination of their, their homes being destroyed. I mean, that element of it too. It, it was, um, I, I, I didn't know
0: what to expect.
1: And mm-hmm. this was, so different than what I would have even tried to imagine.
0: Yeah, The more I talk to people and the more I interview guests, the more I realize none of us are really meant for that aspect of it. We go in to help people and we want to be there for people. And humans aren't built to see that. The trauma, the just the things even in the U.S. that we deal with, with some of the spousal abuse and the child abuse or just the tragedies of car accidents or drunk driving at some level we get kind of jaded or at least like if you get a little tougher, you know, it doesn't, you, you don't feel like it affects you as much. It does. I mean, I think it just sticks with us. I think it just builds. So I found just having conversations like this, just as I interview people, like it's helped you process moments from my career. It's helped people process that. Not that this is a therapy session, but it helps to really talk about it when it isn't just a family member. You're just, feel like you're unloading on when it's just a free space to talk about it. But I, I think we need to somehow do better. I don't I think that a lot of the things happening in medicine, people leaving medicine are not feeling like it's their calling anymore. Is just the built-up trauma of dealing with things that humans aren't really designed to deal with. And I, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's more Therapy or talking or just being vulnerable or just admitting that we're human, just you know, we're not perfect robotic doctors that just always have the right answer and just can go, go, go. There's times where we may need to just stop for a little bit or take a week and just process.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that makes total sense. Yeah, I, I but that also made me think of you know, these thousands and thousands of families that were affected. I mean, I can't imagine how much PTSD there's going to be. I mean, they had, besides the two huge earthquakes, they had tons of aftershocks. And Mm -hmm. I grew up in Southern California, we had our earthquakes, uh, nothing that big. But I I remember growing up, um, we had our big Northridge earthquake when I was, I think, eight. And, you know, every time a truck would drive by and shake the house a little bit, I'd have, you know, my heart would stop for a little bit. And, you know, I can't imagine after that, after losing your home and all your neighbors losing their homes and tons of lives lost. I can't imagine these kids growing up in that environment. I mean, nah. the, driving through those cities um, that were all d- destroyed. I mean, there are the tent cities now, where there's all these tents that are put up, and thankfully there are so many organizations that have been helping to support um, the survivors. But I mean, it's tragic to see these tent cities and. And then there are the endless graves. I mean, driving by, you see just rows and rows of of graves as far as you can see. And uh, I mean, these children that are growing up in that environment, it's, it's so sad. Now, the other issue is on the Syrian side, they had the tent cities that were so old looking, so dirty and ripped. And they're tent cities from the war. So they had already been living in tents from you know from losing their homes from from missile attacks and the war. And and so it's it's like it's so sad on one side, on the Turkey side, they have these brand new tents where these lives are just starting to change. And on the Syrian side, these lives have already been changed. they their homes have already been destroyed. Mm-hmm. It's like there one of the people I was talking with is that was comparing the damage of homes and earthquakes. Uh, from the earthquake in Turkey versus Syria and Syria, they didn't have as many dam- damaged buildings, but it's because they've already been damaged. So, mm-hmm. I mean, just trying to process that is yeah.
0: uh, beyond the medical aspect. I think so. Now, having been there and volunteering for certain, certain organizations, are there some organizations that are doing the most amount of good work that people can donate either time or money to?
1: Well, the group I went with, um, they're called SAMs, Syrian American Medical Society. They, uh, they have had a presence in Syria, so they're well set up. They also have a presence in other countries, like in Turkey and Lebanon, where they've been helping with refugees from the, from the Syrian war. Mm-hmm. So that's the group I know the best because I went with them. Uh, I think most of these groups are non-governmental, non-religious groups, which which I think is probably most ideal in this kind of situation. I mean, our group policy is to not talk politics, not talk religion, because we don't want anything to get in the way of treating a patient. So we don't mm-hmm. care what their nationality is. We don't care what religion they follow, if they follow any. I mean, we just are there to treat patients. and.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll look up their website and put the link in the podcast notes so that anybody that listens to the, your story knows where they can donate and help because they got you over there. They yeah. obviously helped get some medical supplies and took care of visas or, you know, like some of those work things that unfortunately didn't get to the right people at the right time, but eventually got you into the country. And it's hard when you hear these things to know the most Reputable of organizations to donate your money to, especially when you don't have, you know, skill to lend. If you do have money to give, you want to make sure it's getting to not only the people, but it sounds like this organization is giving back to the community and helping to train their doctors to help set up their, Mm -hmm. you know, their communities again to be stronger. So it sounds like a really great, great organization.
1: Yeah. Yeah, with the goals of being sustainable and long-term rather than just a short-term change. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's been the change that I've seen just, you know, in medical mission trips. Like you said, there's a little controversy of how much good you're doing by just going and doing surgery, then leaving. And mm-hmm. I think what I've seen is the shift is is working with local doctors, training local doctors, also helping out with supplies when you show up. And, you know, just even in my own experience of going to Haiti, these are haitian trained ENT and ophthalmologists that care for these people day in and day out. And they try to get the best uh, cases and patients for your skill level when you come. And then, like I said, WhatsApp, they can send you a message and say, hey, Mr. So-and-so, he's two weeks post-op. This is what's coming up. You can also guide their care not just in and out. And right. you've helped the people you've helped, but you've also taught them surgical skills and techniques that they didn't have access to before, and they can continue to do you know, that teach a man to fish kind of mentality. Just right, right. and those surgeons are amazing because, like you said, they are truly comprehensive, regardless of what specialty they're in you know, ob Gyne or general or ophthalmology. They just do what they can to help people, and they just yeah. can't say, "Oh, well, I don't know. I only got to do one of these in residency, or I, I just read about this once." they don't have the luxury of sending it to somebody else so if they at least know the basics they have to try mm-hmm. yeah.
1: yeah and and now with the power of communication and Zoom um we have even talked about um setting up a international ophthalmology subspecialty rounds where we can have a subspecialty day where they present cases and we get specialists from the states to log in and um you know, give some advice and feedback about what they might be uh, wondering about how to treat a patient or what to do. You know, I, I think the world is getting smaller with in terms of being able to communicate through technology. And I think we can use that to our advantage to be able to help remotely in complex situations like this where we can't do a trip every week, but maybe, maybe we can provide some. More meaningful long term support, too.
0: Mm -hmm. That's okay. If you're
1: interested going forward.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let me know how that, uh, if you kind of get that set up and kind of how to get involved with that.
1: Yeah. For sure.
0: Yeah. Well, Omar, thank you so much for coming on. You just, you have a unique experience and uh, career set apart from some of the other doctors and. I hope this inspires people to get more involved. Either if you're just a listener that wants to donate, or if you're a doctor that's been thinking about doing a medical mission trip, reaching out and finding ways to give back and to contribute to the world. So thank you for all you do, and I appreciate you spending your time with us.
1: Well, I appreciate um, you know you asking me to come along and talk, and uh, you know I appreciate all the support I've had from back home. You know it takes a lot out of me, so it's uh, nice to get support from my family and also from my work and they uh, donated two instrument trays that I was able to take with me and just leave behind there. That's so great. Oh, that's, nice. yeah. Yeah. that's
0: really
1: great.
0: And yeah, just like letting you cancel clinic for yeah. the time you're there. That's amazing great. too. That's, that's a big ask for, for a company to let you yeah. do. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, thank you. I appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for coming on. Nice. Um, we'll let you get back to your evening. It's getting a little late here. I got to Set up the you know, close up shop and get ready for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Hey, good seeing well, you. Good to talk to you. you yeah, take have care. A good night. Hi, this is Dr. Dave. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review, and share this episode so that we can continue to get you more stories in the future.